Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the Fugazi catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright. Joining me today to discuss Brendan Number One from the 1990 album Repeater is Matt Byers of Washington, D.C. band The Caribbean and also music podcast Essential Tremors. Uh, Matt, thanks for being on the show today. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I, I, I love that tagline. Fugaz, <laughs> what was that? Fugaz A to Fugaz E? Fuga A to Fuga Z. You know, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> no, none of my guests have uh, commented on it before. Um, uh, I kind of like how cheesy it is. I got to confess, I sort of stole it from The Simpsons. I, I knew you were going to say that. I was going <laughs> to say that's gotta from, that's got to be from Stop the Planet of the Apes. I, I want to get off. Exactly. That's it. Um, yeah. yeah, I hate Favorite. every ape I see from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. Chimp- to chimpanzee, that's one of the best lines ever written. Yeah, yeah it's Fantastic. brilliant. So yeah, I thought it would be a you know suitably um, cheesy uh, opening line to, uh, to to discuss a band that's you know sometimes like a bit serious. So uh, let's oh, yeah. uh, look on the lighter side, right? Um, mm-hmm. So Matt, um, you're so you're in the Caribbean. The Caribbean has been going for quite a while in Washington D.C. Um, did you guys start in 99? Yeah, we started in 99, and before that, Michael and I were in a band called Townies um, with another guy, Greg Jones, who then uh, did not join us on this venture, and we've had a couple different members. Um, in addition to that, mostly studio, but not exclusively, uh, Don Campbell and Tony Dennison. Um, and Tony was in um, Smart Went Crazy, the Discord band. Right. And... Now it's then Dave Jones joined us. I think it was 2004. I'm not 100% sure on that. I'm sorry, Dave, if you're listening, but I think it was 2004. So it's been Dave and Michael and I since then. Yeah, there's that, um, I guess, Chad Clark connection. He's the he's the guy who um, sort of passed me your name, thought you might be interested in doing the show. Um, so uh, another smart, yeah, crazy we, alum. Yeah, and we've, yeah, we've known Chad since... Probably the yeah, I guess mid '90s when we met Tony initially, but then connected with the entire band after that. And our band Townies uh, toured a bit with Smart Went Crazy, and um, then Chad started mixing our, our records when we became um, the Caribbean. And um, yeah, he's a very very close friend and and sort of like a um, I don't know if you could say fifth member, sixth member, or fourth member. I don't know, but. Um, He's an additional member in some respects because of what he brings to the mixing, the production process. Yeah, uh, he's he's definitely essential that way to um, a few musicians I know. Um, before we really jump into stuff, um, would you like to describe uh, Essential Tremors, uh, sort of the concept of that show? Yeah, thanks. Um, I will. It's a show where we speak to musicians, sometimes authors, just creative types in general about uh, three songs that were really formative to them that were super important. And it's not necessarily like their favorite songs. It's the songs that sort of turned their head and made them think about things differently. And, um, my co-host or co-producer is Lee Gardner. He used to be the, um, editor of the Baltimore city paper and the arts editor of the paper before that. And it's really just a clever workaround he's come up with, uh, to get a better version of the question, um, who are your influences? Um, which nobody can really answer, uh, or at least not in any sort of interesting way. So um, to ask people, like, what are the songs that were huge to you, and when was this, and what was happening in your life, um, just opens up all sorts of doors and um, into people's thoughts and their 
what they value and then their lives and their process and everything. So, um, so it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I love the concept too, because you know, you just, it exploits a bit of psychology, right? Like, um, nobody's going to want to go on there and be like, uh, uh, Jeremy by Pearl Jam, you know, they, <laughs> they want to, <laughs> they probably want to impress you a little bit. So you're going to be hearing some, uh, some songs you've never really heard before, probably, um, unless you're a well, super music geek. Yeah, you know, I'd like to think that people are just kind of sort of just put it all out there, sort of naked about it. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been out of mind, but I, I have gone through the process in my head and I thought, I know what I could choose that, that would sound really cool, but I want, you know, I there are songs that I don't know if they're cool or not, but they did they did fulfill that role. Um, and I, I think people are generally pretty transparent about that. Or again, as I said, I like to think so. Um yeah, so it, it it really does give insights. And um, for people who are listening, because you know, the, of course, they're mainly interested in Fugazi. Um, there's there's a connection there too, right? You've had some people important to this podcast on your podcast, so I recommend everybody um, go ahead and check out Essential Tremors. There's some gems of interviews on there. Thanks. Let's talk uh, Fugazi a little bit. Could you tell me about basically your relationship with Fugazi? If you remember when you first encountered them, heard of them saw fugazi show anything like that you know it's hard to say exactly i think i was in them before i came to dc to, to dc i graduated from college in 1990 from a, a college in ohio and ended up moving out to dc a few months later and i was i definitely remember listening to the repeater cassette um even on the drive to move to dc and i had sort of they were sort of central to my thinking about DC, about why DC would be a cool place to be. I must have heard the first record before that. I'm almost sure I did. Um, probably actually when I think about it on college radio, because I was college radio DJ at WRFL at the University of Kentucky. I'm from Lexington, so I was doing like tons of shifts after I graduated from college um, there. And I bet that that's where I was playing a lot of that very 13 songs. Um, so anyway, I had the cassette and I, I guess I sort of, sort of decided, I don't know exactly what the thought process was, but that I'd sort of track them down, not them necessarily, but I just, maybe not even that, just try to get as close to them as I could as, uh, you know, any sort of adjacency I could think of. Um, and what I did was I remember writing a letter to Don Zantera, who of course is the owner and proprietor at Inner Ear Studios where Discord bands record and of course Fugazi themselves and asking to do an internship. I I think I'd already gotten a really my really crappy uh soul sucking dead end low paying job at that point that I had for four years. Um but I was just looking for other things to do on top of that and was willing to work for free. So Don was great. I remember going out to lunch with him and chatting about this stuff and I didn't I was trying to go in there as a production engineer I didn't really know anything about anything um but he took me on and um yeah I just remember I don't know how I didn't get really close to Fugazi but I I don't know if that was the ultimate goal anyway I guess when I think about it but it was just to be you know in that orbit somewhere I knew inner ear was cool I knew I wanted to be nearby I knew I wanted to be involved I didn't know how so that was just my first instinct was to do that. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I was around them, I guess. I mean, they passed through the same halls, just not at the same time as me. <laughs> so as, the cl- as close as I could get at the time. 
yeah, I, I guess as time went on, I lived from, in D.C. from 90 to 94. Um, I'm up in Baltimore now, but um, D.C. is still my musical home, sort of, But because uh, my band is based there. But I remember, of course, during that period, like tons of opportunities to see Fugazi. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the fact that I didn't have much money. I don't think that was probably it. I, I It might be, have been because I was kind of introverted and shy. I wasn't, I loved, I loved them, but I was also intimidated by them. I was intimidated by a lot of the things in the city at that point. I was from a much smaller place and it, you know, sometimes parts of DC sort of made me nervous. I did manage to go to shows anyway, but I think that maybe kept me from going to Fugazi shows. Cause I probably missed, if you look at their show list from, you know, when I was in DC, when they were playing in DC or anywhere nearby, from 1994, you know, I can't even imagine how many shows that was. I did manage to see them at 930 Club um, a little bit later in the era, uh, or I should say the decade. Um, but yeah, I'm, I missed a ton of shows, of Fugazi shows, that I now wish I had attended. Um, but yeah, I still thought about them a lot. And then my first band ended up recording with Jeff Turner, who had been in um, Senator Flux and before that Gray Matter, which was an early, early-ish Discord band. Um, so again, I kind of felt I was not, if not in that orbit, like just, uh, you know, sort of around some of that and knew people who knew people, knew people who knew them. Um, so I could ask questions and, and sort of um, gather intel that way. A lot of the people that I talked to, um, you know, that seems to be a common sentiment um, that they've they missed out on a lot of uh, Fugazi shows because they really were a band mm-hmm. that made themselves available, uh, especially in the D.C. area. So uh, mm-hmm. at least, uh, you know, you're not alone. Uh, a lot of people sort of well, feel the you, same way. You say that sort of jo- you say that jokingly, but that's absolutely true. That actually makes me feel better because yeah. I assumed it would have just have been me. But um, that's and you're right. They played so many shows that you're just like, ah, get them some other time, you know. So yeah. but I, and I did. But I wish I'd caught them more. Would you say that uh, Fugazi is an influence on you, um, musically speaking, uh, as, as far as being a musician, um, in a way that you could articulate? In terms of like artistic vision and integrity, um, I think they're an influence on almost anybody who's in whatever this genre is. Um, there's almost no way for them not to be. They, if you're speaking strictly musically there's probably things here and there, but I mean, we're just not, I, it wasn't for us always so much musical. It was just the, the spirit of it. I mean, nothing that comes out of us sounds anything like that. And nor could I ever make it sound like that really. Um, the, I mean, I see them as there, there's honestly, for lack of a better word, sort of leadership that they provided for um, all of whatever, again, whatever genre you want to call it, independent music or whatever, um, during that era in particular when they were active that uh, everybody followed, aspired to, and followed their lead in most respects. And again, that's not necessarily what bands sounded like or music specifically, but just how you conducted yourself and what was important and having um, ethics and integrity and doing what you wanted um, and try to kind of trying to stay true to yourself. I mean, we've definitely, we're not, that's not the only place that we would have gotten that influence, but I mean, they are 
very have been very strong and consistent in that and Ian has been his whole his whole career and um still is so um I think that's probably where the the biggest influence has been which is one of the nice things about Fugazi you know like most the vast majority of bands if they don't influence me musically they don't influence me at all right um they're they're like not on the map at all um but you know Fugazi can uh, be an influence on me even if I'm in a band that doesn't sound anything like them that's an interesting point. I would have never thought of that because I'm trying to think of other bands that, yeah, would fit in that category of like, uh, they're not a musical influence, but I'm influenced by them. I, I suppose there are others, but nothing nearly that strong. I mean, Ian, you know, from Minor Threat on and definitely with Fugazi, um, yeah, I was just saying like, this is what we're about. This is how people should conduct themselves and do things. And it definitely sort of set the set the rules for for everybody. So yeah, interesting, interesting thought. So um, today's song we're talking about, Brendan Number One. It's an instrumental, uh, the second instrumental uh, in this podcast series that we're discussing. Um, so I'd like to thank you for jumping on and being willing to talk about that. It's a little bit more of a, of a daunting prospect to uh, spend a whole conversation talking about a song with uh, no words, uh, to, quote, <laughs> to quote Ian McKay again. Um, uh, and uh, and it's, it's always nice, I've got to say, you know, it's named after uh, Brendan. Um, and it's, it's always nice for me to talk to somebody who plays drums because that's the instrument I'm least able to speak intelligently about. So um, <laughs> feel free to jump in with as, as much about that as you'd like to say. Um, so, uh, Brendan number one, um, along with Joe number one, another instrumental is, uh, uh, special because it's one of Fugazi's most common live show openers. I asked Ian McKay about this in an email. Um, he told me that Joe number one and Brendan number one were like the most typical show openers because they were instrumentals and mm-hmm. they gave the band sort of an opportunity to uh, do a, a sort of sound check to get a sense of the acoustics of the room yep. with actual yep. people on the floor. Because, you know, when you do a sound check, most of the time you do it to an empty room. It's completely different. The acoustics change. The, the uh, oh, yeah. surfaces are, uh, you don't have that huge empty well, floor. You, you, you need to have the, what are called, uh, I've heard someone refer to as the sandbags have to be in the room <laughs> to absorb the, and actually this is all name droppy, but I've loved that term forever. And it was Sterling Morrison who said that we pay, we played with Mo Tucker in our previous band, um, a couple times here and then Chicago an old nine thirty club. And I remember during soundcheck, I'm saying that'll sound different when the sound, when the sandbags are in here. Anyway, carry on. I like it. The, the long pigs. Um, yeah, right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, that's a neat little tidbit. Um, I, I've mentioned before on the show, um, I've, mm-hmm. I've crunched, uh, data from the Fugazi live series. Um, cause they're just mm-hmm. a ton of their live set lists, uh, up online for people to yeah. uh, peruse. Probably Joe number one is the most common uh, opening song with Brendan number one uh, being the second most common. So anyway, um, I mean, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the music. Um, uh, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to give the first word to my guest. Um, do you have any immediate thoughts about this uh, song and why you'd like to discuss it? Well, I, I've been thinking about it a little bit since we initially made contact. I think it's in an interesting place on this record. And I'll also admit before I even start a sort of a little bit of a bias against instrumentals. Um, not every instrumental, but I sometimes think just from my own experience, often, especially in like your high school band or whatever, you wouldn't have the wherewithal or the, 
gumption or whatever to come up with vocals on something. So people would just say, oh, let's make it an instrumental. It was just kind of a cop-out. So I, I bring that baggage to this. That being said, um, it is, actually, I love the song. And for them, I don't know, I, I always wonder how strategic it was for them. I, I think that this, it was strategic, obviously, in the sequencing of the record, um, in the sense that where it's placed is really an interesting place. And often instrumentals are sort of, I think, shoved down later in the record, like, we're almost out of wind here, but here's something else. <laughs> um, and in, yeah, especially in the pre-digital era when maybe they're just trying to fill aside, I don't know. But they, you know, it comes tearing out of the gates on this record, um, you know, turnover and then repeater, which are just stunning and your hair is blown back. And then Brendan number one comes on and I, I like to think that they were maybe thinking, you know, we're, we're taking a breath here. This is not exactly an intermission, but maybe sort of an, a sort of a mild intermission. We're going to let you kind of, we're going to clear the air a little bit, but even in that spirit, if that's what it was, I don't really know. There's still so much intensity and energy to this that uh, it's it's still so driving and so um, uh, at a loss for words. There's still so much to it. It's so weighty um, that it does provide that palate, palate cleanser of having no vocals, which I think is really important, especially as the third song on the record that's amazing because it clears space then for merchandise, which is you know, another absolutely iconic song by them. Um, and I don't think that merchandise would land the same way if Brendan number one had not been an instrumental. I think it's interesting. That's a great point about the sequencing. I've, yeah, I've been thinking about the song too, but that's an angle that I actually hadn't considered uh, for some reason. Um, but you're, you're totally right. It, it works so well within the sequence of that record. The interesting thing too about instrumentals when it comes to Fugazi is based on interviews I've read with them and heard um, their songwriting process was, you know, probably different from a lot of bands, which is basically that all their songs started as instrumentals, right? They would, um, it would, it was like pretty much a fully collaborative process. Somebody would bring in a riff, they'd play with that. They'd sort of deconstruct it, add other stuff. Um, they just sort of jam it out. They'd have this wholly composed uh, instrumental basically and then only basically when that was finished would um, would Ian or Guy write some lyrics. Um, so yeah, you wonder how how do they decide? You know, when when it comes to one of these songs, it's like yeah, let's let's leave this one without right. vocals. Um, right. It's it's uh, it's just a sort of fun thing for me to think about when I consider this stuff. That is interesting. Yeah, that they would do that. I didn't know that was the process they went through. And yeah, this is the one where they're like. Yeah, we'll just leave it as is of all of them. I suppose it could be as simple as, yeah, the vocal line just didn't work. Or maybe it just made, it did make, make sense in the sense that they're, they were creating the stuff that was going to be on this record, consciously or not. Obviously, it was all of likely of the same era. And maybe it just felt right, even as they wrote and rehearsed, that there was this one piece that didn't have, you know, the vocal just pounding at you. Because ultimately, it's a, it's a form of dynamics, right? If you have the first song, you have the second song, both with very, very complete and really fulfilling, fulfilled vocals. And then um, it's a dynamic shift to take that away and then return to it. So, yeah, I, I wonder if um, 
so Brendan number one starts out in a very I don't know I think hypnotic is the word I would use to describe mm-hmm. um, the, this driving bass and drum intro and I guess if you have you have that sort of powerful thing it's a short bass line it keeps looping um, I think it's the same mm-hmm. bass line through the entire song unless Joe throws in some like little grace notes here or there there isn't a I think there's a I don't know if he picks that up on the ascension. Or if he's still doing that same, yeah, that I, same line. I mean, I think it's the same line. It might have different really? accent notes or something. Okay. That's um, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I mean, I guess if maybe that that plays into um, the decision to to keep it without vocals, like it's like let's let's just loop that. Let's just get into mm-hmm. this amazing groove uh, and then the, uh, the guitars come in and start um yeah that that ascending line it's i love that too it's really sort of this menacing feel kind of um, mm-hmm. and i guess it's um i guess it's the octave chords that ian and gee um are mm-hmm. sort of known for doing just like uh this this rapid strumming that's an interesting thing you bring up there too is the notion of that if that that is a static thing that's playing throughout that really changes the way a little bit how I think about that song in the sense that, yeah, there, that, that does set it apart from its predecessor and successor on the record. Um, because it is static. It is, here's something we're going to deliver to you over and over and over and over and over again. And then we're going to stop. Now we're moving on to something with a little more complexity. Um, yeah, that, that again is perhaps you could think of as a palate cleanser, but you could also think of as, um, playing with dynamics a little bit maybe dynamics isn't the right word but just how um something repetitive you don't have to your brain doesn't have to analyze or decode in the same way um so i think it it, it does it's 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 a it's a chance for your head to reset a little bit between two really incredibly massive pieces of um of art on either side of it i think to it's it's this great way for them to flex their sort of creative um, compositional muscles. Um, like they're, they're so good at coming up with interesting guitar parts, drum parts, everything. And, and it's sort of like, it's it's almost like you can imagine them jamming it out and just be like, Joe, all right, just do the same thing. We're going to see how many different things we can do over top of that and have it be cool and interesting. Um, yeah. And, and it works. It's um, Yeah. I was going to ask what you thought of the the drum part, at least that, that sort of opening drum part, it's really, I would say it's really tribal, right? It's very heavy on uh, the toms. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. I was going to say primal, but tribal works too. <laughs> and there is something to be said for that too, that I think it puts your head in that space. When it starts out that way, and you are on, it sounds to me like rack toms probably, maybe there's a floor in there too, I don't know. Um, but it is, it's really tribal. And I guess I keep coming back to the same notion I've been talking about for this whole time of it resets things because when you think about the songs preceding the song after it, um, I mean, merchandise doesn't start that way. Um, so it really is. It's a, it's a tonal shift, which I think is, can be really important for your, for the listener's brain, right? If you're going to actually receive all this information and process it, you need there to be chances to, take a break in the process where you're not constantly processing information. And I love it for, I love music or other art where you have to constantly process information. 
I think I'm in a band like that, honestly. <laughs> but in this case, it really, um, you can see that. And I, I don't think any of this is discussed at a boardroom table with them by any means, like amongst themselves. I think it's something instinctive, more likely. And it could be an element of dumb luck, too. But I bet it just felt right to them. Like, this song feels right here because it does feel different. And I think that's another element that you bring up is the, is the toms, um, that tribal, primal sort of feel. I like that. Um, that's another element of the sequence uh, that's kind of interesting um, and is, is very true, right? Like this comes after a repeater um, and instead of getting a new set of lyrics to, you know, to have your brain process, you can imagine somebody listening to this record for the first time and still sort of digesting repeater as they listen to Brendan number one, right? They, yes. they just get this yes. extra few minutes to think about what they just heard. Um, and it's not like, oh, here's another um, whole topic that I have to think about and, and uh, decipher the lyrics. I can I can right. meditate on that for, for a little longer with this right, sort because... of hypnotic tribal uh, beat under it that helps yeah, you get in the zone. I think that, yeah, sorry. I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. Exactly. Yeah. And if you think about it, like think about taking that, taking Brendan number one out of the sequence, if you went straight into merchandise, um, that would be a really different feel, right? And it would. It would be a lot to consume. I think that people... It, it, people might not have absorbed it in the same way. Um, so yeah, it serves an important purpose. Now, um, you can also throw all that analysis out the window because it just, if you want, it, it, it's, I think it's relevant and probably valid, but if you want, you can throw it out the window as a listener and it's just a, it's just a great piece on its own. Um, as just about everything they were doing was at this stage of their career. I mean, that's part of, I mean, they were just blossoming and um, it's it's just in every single thing they do. There's that energy and vibrancy and true believer sort of vibe through absolutely every action they took that it's undeniable. And you listen to any of the live sets from them, watch video. I mean, this is true of pretty much their whole career, but I, I, I see this as a golden sort of era within the whole golden era. And um just pure, complete clarity and confidence in what they were doing. Um, and it's really a thing to behold. Yeah. So it's, it's a great piece on its own without any, without it being a role player or even without the sequencing, it's, it's an amazing piece. Definitely because, um, you know, you mentioned it, uh, as sort of a tonal shift within the record, but you know, also within this song there it's, it has these great tonal shifts. I mean, I mean, particularly, You've got sort of this hypnotic uh, intro with the bass and drums. You've got the the ascending uh, octave guitar chords, and then all of a sudden, there, it's it sort of bursts into this sort of major key cheerful part, right? With uh, I guess I guess it's Guy's guitar that's sort of like mm-hmm. chiming on the high strings. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's a real tension and release, but then also it's. Um, it makes me question, well, which one is the tension and which one's the release, right? Because it's all this, mm. this sort of like almost menacing primal stuff uh, building up to this major key part where it actually sort of seems to resolve on the on the one of the song. Um, but then, you know, when, when, that, when that's happening, you're sort of like, okay, when's it going to get heavy again? Um, so it works sort of going in and coming out um, just as well. You know, it's only recently that that, quote that's attributed to all number of people from Laurie Anderson, Anderson to uh, Elvis Costello has really 
come sort of come to the fore for me and become very clear, which is, you know, the dancing about architecture, you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about music, but when I think about what's happening in that song, and, and this is something, again, that's become clear to me recently, is like it, words aren't sufficient, really. There's communication happening there that between the band members and also from the band members to the audience that is probably impossible to articulate. Um, and I think a good band in particular, just like a good conversationalist or a good speaker of any sort, there's going to be nuances and subtleties and there's going to be, um, there's going to be shades of different ideas and meanings that, that, that will come through. I like talking about this sort of thing mainly because it does help me think about my own music writing and, uh, just talking it out sort of helps me, uh, keep in mind some interesting moves they pull, uh, interesting tricks they pull out of their pocket that I, I feel like could be of use uh, in my own writing. That's interesting. That's really different than the way I think about it. I And I don't know, uh, my formal music training stopped in ninth grade um, when I, actually t- beginning of 10th when I quit uh, marching band, I played trombone. I, I, I So I I know what major keys are and minor keys are, and I know, you know, it wasn't actually until maybe like six or seven years ago, somebody said to us, uh, yeah, your chords resolve in a really weird way. It never occurred to me that chords had to resolve. I didn't know what that meant. Um, so I guess in my collaboration with Michael that's gone on for, you know, 25 years, actually more than that, um, we have our own vocabulary for describing these things. And we talk about them a lot, but I don't think almost none of the, vernacular of actual music composition ever takes is ever part of it um so it's it's interesting to to hear uh somebody else use that and i think it's a completely valid way to approach it it's just different than i'm than i'm used to honestly um and i am not also i am sort of an arranger but i'm not really the primary songwriter like michael is i'm not at all so i guess i don't think in those ways i'm just thinking of how things are presented, how they present themselves as a whole, rather than um, what should we do after this part, you know? Um, so it's uh, it's interesting to hear other people, someone else who has a different sort of way of thinking about it. Another part of it is that I'm not really active in music anymore, so uh, it's nice to at least think about it on some level if I'm not uh, writing songs for a band, uh, which, which you still get to do at this moment. So. Oh, sure. And I think you know it, that being all that being said, um, to ha- hear you talk about it in that way, and then to try to respond to some of those ideas, and then think about my own ideas as well. You know, it's all all this analysis is making me think of things and realize things that I hadn't thought about with the song. So yeah, it's absolutely a, it's an interesting process for sure. Uh, just to bring up one other musical part of the song that I wanted to give a tip of the hat to because I like it a lot. Um, sort of later in the piece. I think it's Ian, he's playing this part that's basically just a single note um, repeated, but I think it plays against the beat. Um, I think he, he sort of plays five notes in in one like bar of 4-4. Four, four. It's like one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, and it's just, it's another element of um, 
it gives it gives this feel of adding tension to the uh, upcoming sort of like resolution. Um, so that's that's something I enjoyed about this also. I think that's I think that's my last piece. <laughs> it, it's funny you said that because as soon as you said that, I had it in my head like exactly what yeah. you're talking. I can hear it in a loop right now. Da, na, 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 na. Yeah, and you're right. It's it's a it's out of the time signature a little bit, um, which adds to the tension. It's um, it's pretty it's a pretty fascinating approach, I think. And I guess I do when when I do think about because I have other friends who who sometimes speak in very and not very but like in, in with using more again the language of formal music training or composition or whatever. And um, then I think of a, a moment like that. And it is by definition what you're saying. I think you're right. He's playing against the time signature. There's maybe something else. But but it's also interesting because I think, you know, Ian in a million years probably wouldn't be like, oh, it's playing against the time signature, you know. Or I was like, I was trying to do a 5-4. And, you know, it's just something that comes out. Um, and And that's of course, what's one of the most wonderful things about rock music in general, but also um, a band like Fugazi that so can be so fierce and primal is that um, that stuff just comes boiling out of nowhere, right? It doesn't involve the conscious mind. It's fascinating with the conscious mind to analyze it, and it's totally valid, but it's also interesting how that stuff just comes out in the process of playing. Right. And it's that trip, that, that thing that Chad always says, Ian, he, Chad quotes Ian on this all the time, but saying how instruments are, um, people, when they play instruments, it, it just amplifies their personality. Right. Hmm. Um, and it's, uh, that's all it is, is an amplification of your personality, whatever it is you're playing. Um, so if you're, if you start thinking in those terms, um, it really makes a song like this in particular sound even more interesting when you think about it. You think of Joe and Brendan just repeating themselves over and over and over again. And then, um, you know, Ian and Gee having this commentary running on top of it, right? Like, well, how about this? Well, how about this? Well, I have this to say, and I disagree, right? That's kind of what Ian is doing at that point. You could, If you look at it through that lens is sort of disagreeing with what's going on in the rest of the conversation. I love that way of looking at it. Well, on that note, let's talk ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Something we like to do on this podcast is, um, you know, do that thing that music nerds like to do sometimes and assign a rating to a Fugazi song. So if you could rate this on a scale of one to five stars purely within the Fugazi catalog, right? One being your least favorite Fugazi song, five being your most favorite. Do you think you could assign this a rating? Oh man, I hate rating things. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I guess you're talking within the whole canon. Uh, The only reason I wouldn't give it a five is because there's that devalues the five because there's so many fives. I mean, almost everything on this record is a five. Right. Right. And I don't know if that's all things being equal. I, I'm also a teacher. So I really, that's why I bristle against grading so much. It's more like, what's your best work? You know, I'm not going to compare you to somebody else. So I'm thinking in, along those lines of not really comparing kids and where they are. I'm just comparing them to where they were before. So that's my little 
that's that my mindset sort of uh, trips over this. Um, but if I can put that aside, which I can, I'm putting this in the four to four and a half. I mean, I don't know if it'd be the first thing I'd call up if I was like, I'm going to listen to Fugazi song. This wouldn't necessarily be the one, but I am always psyched to hear it. And I think if you, for whatever, in whatever ways you love Fugazi, this one matches up with anything in their catalog. Um, so if I had to stick to a number, um, yeah, I'd say I hate, I feel so bad, like saying a four, like I'm devaluing it, right. <laughs> you know, and who am I to say, my God, this, Hey Ian, guess what? <laughs> Did you hear what Matt said about your song? Yeah, exactly. So that's an 80%. That's an 80%, four out of five. I'm sorry. A low, it's a B minus buddy. Um, so yeah, shit. Let's call it a five. Let's call it a five. <laughs> um, I can tell your students like you. Oh, hey, thanks. It's nice of you to say. Thank you for your service, by the way. Uh, I spent many years myself as a uh, high school English teacher. Um, so, Did uh, you? Yeah, I'm in the life, you know. With my own rating, uh, I'm gonna. I'll probably agree with your first instinct. Um, give, I'll I'll make this one a four star one. Uh, exactly what you're saying, you know. I want to try to reserve the five stars for my my all time uh, greats. Uh, but Brendan, number one, um, man, it's it's great. It's hard hitting. I I love the sort of the sameness of the baseline and the variety of the guitar compositions. Uh, and of course, it it can't be. You can't. A song can't be a, such a common opener and not be sort of like a stone cold hit. Um, obviously, they went back to this again and again because it's probably it's a lot of fun to play. It's a lot of fun to listen to. So um, yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a four star Fugazi song for me. So uh, a couple of strong ratings there for Brendan number one. So let's talk plugs. Let me see. I don't know. Caribbean. The Caribbean is a band.com. Essential Tremors you can find us on NPR or uh, at EssentialPodcast.com. We have shows. Um, we're starting a, a series called Essential Tremors Pre- Presents at a place in Baltimore. We're having um, live bands, some live episode tapings. We're having Martin um, Schmidt from Matmos um, for a live episode taping. Um, coming up, so that's all listed on our site. As for me, you can reach me at fugaziA2Z at gmail.com, and you can also join the Facebook group, The Alphabetical Fugazi, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be discussing Bulldog Front. Until then, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open.